James chapter 1 and verse 1, as we get a new series tonight, that uh, I'm titling Genuine Faith. Uh, James is concerned when he writes as to how faith works, how faith acts. Uh, Paul, uh, oftentimes in Scripture, is talking about what faith is and how faith, how we're justified by our faith. And Paul and James are not enemies, they're friends. James is more concerned not with um, what faith is, but how faith lives. What does genuine faith look like in a person's life? And so that's what he's going to do. And, and when you look at the book of James, it's a little bit hard to try to find a theme. He jumps around to a lot of different subjects, a lot of different topics. It's just like, bam, 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 bam. But what he's doing is saying, if you are a person of faith, you're Jesus follower, this is how you're to live. This is, the, this is kind of the prescription for life. And so we're going to look at it as we uh, dive into the book of James tonight. And uh, boy, James is fast. He's hard-hitting. He uh, doesn't miss words. It's very practical, uh, not hard to understand. So we're going to jump in and uh, it's kind of like buckle your spiritual seatbelt because here we go. <laughs> All right. Um, Revelation, we just finished. A lot of that was like, what is that exactly talking about? James is like, oh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Let's get with it. Look, look at James chapter 1, and we'll read the um, uh, first eight verses, probably only get to verse 5 or 6 or so. James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Well, that patience have the perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that person suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And so James, most scholars, including me, I'm not a scholar, but most scholars, and I agree with most scholars, that this James is the brother of Jesus. You might, some people might say half-brother of Jesus, but grew up in the same household as Jesus. And so this is Jesus's brother. So here's the question, what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? What would it take for you to believe that not, not just a Christian, not a child of God, but that your brother was God in human flesh? Now, most how many of you have a brother? Raise your hand if you got a brother. Brother? Okay. Most, most of us have brothers in here. Okay? So if you don't have a brother, think sister, think best friend, something along those kind of lines. What would it take to convince you that that person was God in human flesh? flesh. Because here's the thing, we grow up with our siblings, right? Grow up with our best friends and we see them do things and say things and it causes us to think, I don't know if they're really God's gift to mankind after all, you know, that's kind of hard for us to believe sometimes. A couple of stories I found about uh, some things that brothers do. One um, guy said that when, uh, when he was born, his brother was about three years old and they told him, uh, the parents told him, try not to get your heart set on a brother or sister too hard because we don't know what it's going to be. And he said, well, if it's a dog, I hope it's a boxer. <laughs> a little bit disappointed there. Another guy, true, said, supposedly true story, said that uh, he had a bad cold and was coughing a lot and that kind of thing. And so his mom had him some cough syrup to take. It was nasty. And, uh, he had a, a brand new bottle of cough syrup, but he didn't want to take it. Six years old. And so he took his cough syrup and poured it into his toy box. When his mom came back, she's like, where's the cough syrup? And he said, my brother drank it all, four years old. 
and they believed him. And four-year-old brother had to go get his stomach pumped <laughs> in the hospital because he lied and said, my brother drank all the cough syrup. Be a hard sell to say, okay, that's the Messiah, right? No, not after that deal. I don't think so. Uh, another one said that he was at a restaurant with his younger sister and she was drinking a vanilla shake and he saw those little packets of mayonnaise. Y'all see where this is going, don't you? Yeah, so he got this, got a straw, filled it with the mayonnaise, sucked the mayonnaise up just to the top, you know. And when she wasn't looking, switched straws with her vanilla shake. And so when she took the big drink of a, what she thought was a vanilla shake, she got mayo and vomited all over the floor. Yeah, it'd be hard to convince her that her brother was the son of God, right? One more, one more. Um, guy said that when he was growing up, had a younger brother, and it was fall. And so they took the wheelbarrow and covered it in leaves and convinced him to run, jump into it. <laughs> yeah, so he runs and dives into the thing of leaves, thinks it's gonna be leaves and bam, hits the wheelbarrow. That would be a little tough to convince him that his brother is the son of God. I, my dad loves to tell the story. I don't love for him to tell the story nearly as much, not nearly as funny to me, but he loves to tell the story when they brought me home from the hospital that my older sister took one look and said, y'all can take him back. <laughs> Somehow James came to believe that his brother was the son of God. Now, James, as, uh, as I said, is the brother of Jesus. It'd be hard to convince a lot of people that your brother truly is the son of God. And James grew up not believing that Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't a believer until after the resurrection because what would it take? Well, if you saw your brother die, and you know that he was buried, and three days later you have breakfast with him, that might convince you, right? And that's what, it, it might take resurrection for you to believe that. That's what it took for James, okay? That's what it took for James to come to this kind of belief. Don't you know that was rough growing up with Jesus as your older brother? Why can't you be more like your brother? <laughs> Why can't you be more like Jesus? Well, he never does anything wrong. I know Jesus never does anything wrong. He's always right. He's always right. And so, you know, WWJD, what, what would Jesus do? James grew up with that. You know, act like your brother. He probably got tired of, of hearing that, but he comes to believe. In fact, you can read here in James chapter 1, you can get the idea that he really does believe that his brother is the son of God. Look in verse 1, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, not many of you would call your brother your Lord. Not many of you would call your, and I wouldn't either, not many of you would call your siblings, uh, you would say that you're their servant of them. But that's what James says. Now think about this. He could have said it a different way. He could have said, James, son of the Virgin Mary, <laughs> brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I knew him before you did. <laughs> I knew him way back then. So listen to me, dog, because I know what he's really like. I, I know, I got the inside scoop. James could kind of put himself on a pedestal here, but he doesn't do that. And it's really good because as you walk through his book, this idea of servanthood, this idea of surrender, this idea of being using our life to bless other people is huge in this book that James writes. And so this guy who, doesn't believe in Jesus because of the resurrection comes to believe that his brother is indeed the son of God and then becomes not only a but perhaps 
the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 21, and in Acts chapter 12, we get the idea, and in Galatians chapter 2, we get the idea that James is not just a leader, he's one of the leaders of the key church in the New Testament, which is the church at Jerusalem. When Peter gets out of jail in Acts chapter 12, he comes to the house of Mary and he says, tell, this is Peter, tell James and the rest of them that I've been released. Signals James out apart from the rest of the guys. In Acts chapter 15, which is the uh, business meeting, it's the earliest business meeting of the church. This is a church where they trying to decide what is going on with the Gentiles and Jews. How do we, what do the Gentiles have to do to really become Christians? Do they have to be Jewish? And so in the middle of that, Peter shares Paul shares, Barnabas shares. And when it comes to a head, look at Acts 15, 13. When they finished, James spoke up and said, brothers, listen to me. How can he say that? He's got authority. They do listen to him. They do respect him. He is one of the leaders of the church. And then in Galatians chapter two, Paul calls James one of the pillars of the church. This guy goes from not really believing in Jesus. Some of you in, in Mark chapter three in Sunday school this morning, if you skip down to verse 31, his family thought, this is probably James, that Jesus kind of lost his mind a little bit, kind of gone crazy a little bit. And yet this guy comes to say, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, prominent leader in the church. And the book of James may very well be the first New Testament book written. Probably, James was probably stoned in AD 62, is what Josephus tells us. And so he died probably in AD 62. This book had made one of the very first books written in the New Testament, probably just right after or right before this, this uh, council in Jerusalem. And so James gives us one of the earliest insights into the early church. And what we're going to see here in the book of James is some of the things that the early church dealt with. And we're going to see some things that you and I deal with. He's going to talk about things like humility and worldliness and divisiveness and pride and troubles and trials and things like that. And so we're going to see that the early church dealt with this kind of thing. The early church dealt with a disunity and people wanting to be in position above somebody else, showing favoritism. These guys, are, we show a little favoritism to them because they got more money and they got more influence in the community. And so we kind of give them a special seat at church. And James would say, no, 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 that's not the way this thing works. Real genuine faith works like this, and then James writes this letter, which is really going to be helpful for us. Now, what we're going to see is that James uses the word faith about 14 times in, his, in this letter, 14 times. He has about 59 commands in this short book. So 14 times he talks about faith. 59 times he says, this is how you live. Now, y'all have heard me say this a lot. You've probably said this a lot. Christianity is not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about relationship, right? But in every relationship, there are some do's and don'ts. <laughs> you know, they may be unspoken. We don't have a list at our house, but there are some unspoken rules, do's and don'ts, ways that that relationship will work better if you do these things than if you don't do these things. It's a true faith for James who lives out in practical, godly 
living a life that has encountered Christ, a life that is trusting in Jesus, is transformed and should be, a transformed life should be the result of experience God's love in our life. And James said, this is what it looks like in real everyday uh, life. And so let's take a look at it. Let's take a look at it. We're going to talk about trials tonight. James jumps in. Maybe he wrote the, the, the uh, letter uh, not too long after cha Acts chapter 8, when the Stephen was stoned and the Jewish Christians were scattered abroad uh, away from Jerusalem, most of them except for the apostles kind of left Jerusalem, went starting churches other places. And so James writes to the 12 tribes and he says, my brothers, I don't think it's, it's just Jewish people because the church has become multiracial by this point. So I think it would be all Christians, but Mainly Jewish Christians, mainly people from a Jewish background will understand James's letter uh, just a little bit better. So these guys have been scattered. There's persecution. There's hard times coming. And so he jumps right into it and says, all right, now if you genuinely have faith in Christ, this is how you live when troubles come, okay? So let's talk about three things about how we uh, live um, and, be, and become transformed by our trials and troubles. Number one, we can choose our attitude in trials. How do we handle trials? How do we handle problems God's way with genuine faith? Well, number one, we get to choose our attitude in trials. Some things we can't choose in trials, right? We can't choose what kind of trial comes our way a lot of times. We can't choose how long it lasts a, a lot of times. We can't choose when it leaves a lot of times. We can't choose to pass. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Trial comes your way, family trial, the flu, car breaks down, something happens at your house, you know, some kind of relationship problem. Wouldn't you like to be able to do like you do in a game, so not pass? <laughs> I'll just take a pass on that one right there. A lot of times with trials, uh, we don't get a pass. We, there are a lot of things we can't choose. We can choose our attitude. Look in verse 2 in the New International Version. James writes, consider it pure joy my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because how can you consider it joy when you have trouble? Well, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, or in your translation, you may say patience, or it may say endurance. Let patience or perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So here's the big idea. If you don't get anything else on it, here's the big idea in this first couple of verses in James chapter one. When we encounter trials, we should count it as joy, consider it joy, submitting to God, knowing he's using it for our maturity. That's kind of the big message. That's the big idea. When trials come our way, boy, don't you know, you don't have to go look for them, do you? You just, they just come. When trials come our way, we can count it, consider it as joy, as pure joy, submitting to God, choosing our attitude. We're going to see a few moments. We're going to choose our actions as well, submitting that trial to God, knowing, believing, trusting that God's going to use it for our maturity in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, when James says, consider it a pure joy, consider it a great joy, that just sounds weird, doesn't it? It means a complete joy, a whole joy, overflowing joy. And I don't know anybody that that comes natural to. Hard times, difficult times comes your way, as I said. And this word for trials, it's kind of like a word, like a, 
like a slip cover for a couch at one size fits all, you know? This word for trials is a word that means, it can mean any kind of trial, any kind, anything that's hard for you, that's difficult, that causes you to sleep at night, that causes you to go, oh man, you know, that kind of thing. That's the thing that James says, all right, you be happy about this. I don't know if anybody says, yay, my car broke down. <laughs> yay, the washing machine quit working. I get to go buy a new one. <laughs> yay, I got the flu this week. This is the perfect week for me to have the flu. We don't hardly ever say that right because that's just counterintuitive. In fact, it led one guy to say it this way. He said, it might cause his original readers to say, how nice, a letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. <laughs> Who believes this? We, you know, you might, you might wonder, is this, I mean, is he for real? Really? We're to be, we're to consider it joy. We consider it a good thing when hard things come out. Well, you kind of wonder if James is kidding. And he's not. It's kind of one of those things you're like, okay, that's, that's kind of for somebody else. That's kind of for New Testament days. That's kind of for super Christians, guys going with a little extra credit. It's not. Everybody, every Christian goes through hard times. And this is what James is writes to everybody. And James is not the only one who writes this. Pretty influential people in the New Testament who write this as well. Uh, Peter writes it, look in 1 Peter 4. He says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when the glory when his glory is revealed. Peter says, Rejoice when you get a chance to suffer with Jesus. Paul said it this way, almost the same words that James uses in the New Living Translations. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Why, why do you want to rejoice in problems and trials? For we know they help us develop endurance. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, anybody want to take a guess who said this? It'd be Jesus, okay? Blessed are you when people insult you. The word blessed, happy, full joy. Are you, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. Are you kidding me? Because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Paul says it, Peter says it, James says it, Jesus says it. It must be something we really need to hear. How do you do that? How do you choose an attitude of joy when hard things come your way? Well, first of all, we have to consider. To, in order to choose an attitude of joy, first of all, we have to consider. It's what he says, consider it joy. Look, if you will, in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, full joy, overwhelming joy whenever you face trials of many Kind. So he says, consider, it's not going to be natural. It's not going to be automatic. It's not going to be something that comes you know, easy for you. But the word to consider means to think, to count, or regard something based on weighing and comparing facts. To consider is not to make an emotional response. It is not to just make a knee-jerk reaction. It is you have to step back for a minute. It's not going to come natural. You've got to step back for a minute and think about why is this happening to me? And watch this really. What is God's purpose in this happening to me? Apart from that, you'll still have trials. You just won't be able to get any joy out of it. You see, without considering, without thinking about it from God's perspective and seeing trials from God's perspective doesn't mean you don't have them. It just means you have no joy when they come. As Christians, aren't you glad we get a chance to think about trials from a biblical perspective and even have joy in the 
hard days of our life. So first of all, we have to consider. Secondly, we consider them to be under God's control. They're never outside of God's control. God never says, boy, Holt, I did not see that coming, buddy. Sorry about that one. Um, Hang on. (laughs) Let me see if I can figure out what to do with that, all right? I I didn't plan on that one, man, but I'm going to have to think about that one for a minute. Never do you wake up in the morning and something's going on with your kids and God's like, boy, how about that? Do your best. (laughs) Hang in there. No, he says, he says, if, he doesn't say if you encounter, he says when you encounter. These are going, trials are going to happen. And when they do, we have to believe that, hey, God is not sitting up in heaven wondering what in the world do we do now? He already knew it before it got there and he already knew his plan for you in the middle of it. Okay, God is never caught off guard, never caught by surprise. Now, we don't always know where the trial came from. Uh, Scriptures gives us about five places that trials may come from. Trials can come from the devil. How many of you know that, right? The devil, he's all all about steal, kill, and destroy, right? So sometimes Satan calls trials, the book of Job. Uh, Sometimes God causes trials. And the Bible says in Hebrews 12 that God disciplines us. And that discipline, I love the King James Version, seemeth not to be joyous. <laughs> yeah, the discipline's no fun, right? It's no fun. So, so sometimes trials come from God. Sometimes trials come from our sin or somebody else's sin. We make a bad decision or somebody else makes it close to us, it's friends with us or it's our boss or something. They make a bad decision. And sometimes the result of their bad decision flows into our lives. And that's tough. Sometimes trials come just from following Jesus. Jesus said what? Rejoice when people persecute you and insult you and say evil against you because of me. Sometimes it's because you follow Jesus that you get to trial. And sometimes it's part of living in a broken world. We live in a world that does not, this is not the Garden of Eden anymore. And um, since mankind sinned, there's all manner of evil and un- injustice and things going on in the world. And so sometimes that happens. But here's the deal. No matter where it comes from, we are to respond with joy, not with anger and not with disappointment. And I'm preaching to the pastor right now, <laughs> right? Because what do we typically say? Oh, great. I can't believe this is happening right now. This is the worst week for this to try to happen. Why does it have to happen right now? Why this thing, right? I thought we kind of got it figured out. And here's the thing. You will never get life straightened out where you don't have troubles and trials and problems and issues. The hard thing, the mature thing as a Christian is learn to be able to say, Lord, I consider this joy. I choose to consider this a joy. This attitude also comes from a deliberate choice, Okay. See, we have to consider, we have to figure it out. We have to try to understand their front God's control, but then we have to make a deliberate decision. And the decision has to come from, will I trust God's promises or not? God's promises says that he'll work all things together for our good and for his glory. God's promises says he'll never leave us. God's promises says there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God's promises says nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So I have to have an attitude of, I am going to trust that in this trial, according to James chapter one, God is going to do a good work in me. And so I'm going to trust, even though this feels bad, looks bad, sounds bad, I don't like it. I wish I'd get out of it. By the way, if you're in a trial and you could do something to get out of it, that's 
fine with God, you know, certainly try to get out of it. Try to change, try to fix it. Go to the doctor, take the medicine, you know, change jobs, whatever it is you got to do. But here's the thing. To have an attitude of joy, you have to trust that God really does have a good work in this. And then the other thing is this attitude comes from trusting God's good purpose for this trial. God has a purpose, good purpose for this trial trial. Look at James 1 verses 3 and 4. Because you know, here's the good purpose, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance let per, or endurance or patience. Let perseverance, endurance, patience finish its work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God's goal is for us to be mature in Jesus, to grow to be like Jesus. And it doesn't matter what happens, where it comes from, what the reason for it is, whatever situation we're in, if we choose to trust God in it and submit to God through it, God will use it to make us more like Jesus. That's his goal. That's what he's after. I love what Max Lucado says. Lucado says, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. So think of a trial in your life right now. Probably not too hard for most of us, right? Think of something in your life that you wish wasn't there. Something in your life that's hard for you, difficult for you right now. And this gets a little bit uncomfortable. Is your biggest desire for that thing, for it to leave, or for you to be more like Jesus? That's an ouch, isn't it? That's an oh me. That's an oh me for me. Because here's the thing. If my biggest desire for that, if my ultimate desire is for to get out of the trial, for the trial to leave, then I'm going to be frustrated. I'm never going to be able to consider it joy. But if my goal, if my true heart is to becoming more Christ-like, then I can consider it joy. I can say, God, thank you that while I don't like this, I thank you that no matter if it's from you, it's from the devil, it's somebody else's poor decision, no matter where it's from, I can trust that you're going to make me more like Jesus and that's what I really want in my life. The biggest frustrations in my life with trials and difficult circumstances and bad things happening it's because I want it to go away. I want it to quit more than I want to be like Jesus. Malcolm Muggeridge was a Christian over in England many years ago. He was um, very much an agnostic, very much against Christianity and became to Christ in his later years. He was a newspaper reporter back when they used to have actual newspapers. There used to be these things called newspapers. You have paper, and have words on them, you read them. And uh, anyway, that's what Malcolm Muggeridge said. He wrote, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it's the cross more than anything else that has called me to Christ. And so if our goal is to live comfortable, easy, carefree lives, then trials will never, everybody say never, 
There'll never be a joy to us. Well, he'll have them, just won't be able to consider them a joy or to benefit from. Second thing I want you to see, first of all, we can choose our attitude in joy. Second thing we can do, we can choose our actions in joy. We can choose to act in the way that true faith calls us to act, in ways that will lead us to Christ's likeness. Because here's the thing, trials are going to change you. They will. The hard times will change you. They're either going to make you bitter or better. Better or better. They, they, you don't go unscathed through a trial. God, either you either submit to God and he makes you more like Jesus or you get mad and angry and cynical and that kind of thing and that doesn't make you more like Jesus. Look at James chapter one, verse four. Let perseverance or patience or endurance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. This idea of perseverance, patience, endurance, highly, pri- highly prized trait. This is what God is after. The idea of patience or endurance, perseverance, is the idea of spiritual toughness, not giving up, staying with it. It is an active steadfastness, a staying power, a constancy, a determination under trial, but it's colored with the idea of hope. It's not just grit your teeth. It's the idea of I can stay with this thing because what? God is at work in this. I'm going to choose to act in a way that's going to move me toward Jesus. It's going to move me toward Christ's likeness. If I do that, I get joy out of it. You see, I choose to obey and God chooses to make me more like Jesus. I can't just make myself more like Jesus. And most of us here tonight would say, man, I want to be more like Christ, right? Well, how do you do that? When the trial hits, you choose an attitude of joy. You choose to obey God, trusting that God knows what he's doing and what the ultimate goal of this is. Notice the first word of verse 4. First word of verse 4 is word let. Let implies submission. Let it work out. Don't kick and scream and fight against it. You, don't, you see... Sometimes when we're in a trial, we want to ask what? Why? (laughs) Why is this happening to me? Why are they doing that? Why won't they get their acts straight? Why do they have to act in ways that bring hurt and harm into my life? And that's okay. It's not wrong. You can vent all you want to to God, okay? God can handle it. He's the best person to vent to. But there comes a day when you have to say, okay, God either has shown me why this is happening and I'm not really happy about it because there's been a few times in my life when I've asked God, why, why, why? Typically when God answers my why, I'm not satisfied. <laughs> why is that happening to me? Because I made a dumb decision. But I don't like that. <laughs> That's why it happened, okay? So, so even when God answers why, it doesn't fix things for us a lot of times. The why is not the biggest thing. The biggest thing is what do I do to obey God? How can I become more like Jesus in the midst of this submission? It's not an attitude of shaking my fist towards God's face saying, you have no right to do this to me. You have no right to let this happen to me. You could have stopped this if you wanted to. Now, submission says, okay, Lord, this is a difficult circumstance, but I trust you to make me more like Jesus in the middle of it, okay? I'm not going to be defiant. I'm going to be submissive. And remembering that maturity in Jesus is a process, not instant perfection. It's a process. God's going to work this thing out. Look at James 4 again. Notice how, this is how it works out. Let perseverance finish its work. It's going to work itself out so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God's going to do a work in you. And the idea 
of wisdom in the Old Testament, which is what James is drawing from. The idea of wisdom in the Old Testament is the ability to do something. It's not just being smart. The idea of wisdom in the Old Testament is the idea of being able to put the priest ephod together. It's the idea of being able to build a temple. It's the idea of being developing strategies for war. It's the idea of being able to construct something. The idea of knowing how to live a wise life. And so the idea of wisdom here is not that I know something, but I am, I am able to do something. And so God is saying, through your trial, I'm going to show you some things that's going to really help you when you need to help somebody else. You're going to have a tender heart. You're going to be more compassionate. You're going to be more loving. You might lead with a hug instead of just a verse. Verses are fine. You might lead with compassion more than, you know, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> it, th th when you go through the trials, God does something to give you a heart more like Jesus, the complete person. It's a person that's fitted out, ready to do the things God's called them to do. It's, it's a key term for rightful purpose, doing the right thing. And if we want to be fitted to live the right kind of life, a life of glory to God and help to our brothers and sisters in Jesus, then we have to choose an attitude of joy and an action of submitting to God when it's really, really hard. Uh, Stephen Cole's a pastor. I've listened to some of his sermons and talks about once in a while people to come to and they're about to get married and sometimes, sometimes it'll be a Christian who's planning to marry a non-Christian, which is against scripture. And uh, scripture said, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so he said, usually he'll say something like this, but do you want God's blessing on your marriage? And every time they say yes, well, she, you know, nobody ever says, no, I don't want God's blessing on my marriage, you know? Yes. And then he will say, well, then why are you engaged to a non-Christian? Because that's against God's word. And that produces a trial. Because now they've got to either say, well, now that you've shown that to me in scripture, I've either got to disobey God and marry this person, or I've got to break up. Either way, it's going to be hard, right? Either way, it's going to be hard. And he said, to, yeah, he had one person one time told him, said, well, Pastor Stephen, you know, I've I know that he's not a Christian, but I've prayed about it, and I just have a peace about it. And he said, well, you sinned when you prayed about it. Because God's word already tells you what to do. You don't pray about being disobedient. You obey or disobey. So that's where you got off. You know, you're being defiant against what God's word says. And so the idea here is to say, Lord, I'm submissive to you. I believe you're gonna do something really good. And the last thing is we choose to ask. We choose to ask God for his wisdom in trials. We don't always know the best way to act. So we have an attitude and action. And then we choose to ask God in the middle of our trials. Look at James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? Isn't it an encouraging verse? You're in the middle of a trial, hard time. You don't know what to do. And you say, God, I need wisdom to know what to do with this. This person is, is acting all kind of weird. I don't know what to do with that. Or I've got this bill or I've got this work situation or this relationship issue. And I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to disobey you, uh, but I don't want to offend them. And so, God, I, I'm not really sure what to do here. I, what do I do? And the Bible says that God will give it generously and without criticizing. God doesn't say, 
You really ought to know better by now. <laughs> We've been over this before. <laughs> as long as you've been a Christian, you don't know how to have God doesn't criticize. He gives generously. He welcomes us. He wants us. He invites us to ask. I love that God's not saying, you, ought, you know what to do. I've had people before when I say, you know, I'm not really sure if this is a sin or not. And I've had people tell me, well, if you have to ask the question, you already know the answer. No, not really. <laughs> not all the time. Not all the time. I'm glad doesn't respond. God doesn't respond that way. I'm glad God doesn't say, if you'd pay more attention, you would already know. <laughs> I'm glad God doesn't say, you shouldn't have to ask. I'm God doesn't say, glad God doesn't say, just read the Bible. God says, come to me, ask me. I want to give you without finding fault. What the word means without insulting you. Doesn't call you stupid or what in the world are you doing? He invites you to come. And here it is in verse 6, looking at the New Living Translation. But when you ask, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't waver. For a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And when he talks about not doubting and not wavering, the idea is action, not thought. He's not saying... Ask and never have any doubt in your mind that God's going to answer. I mean, obviously, you want to ask with confidence that God's going to answer. But what this is talking about is a commitment to do God's will. I'm going to ask you for wisdom. I'm not going to waver. I'm going to do as best I know what you tell me to do. The person that waffles, the person that wavers is the person that... You know, one day he wants to do God's will, and then he's going to run with the uh, party crowd. One day, God showed me I want to do the, I want to do your thing, and then I'm going to do what my friends want me to do. He said, No, 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 not, it's not the idea of going this way and that with never committing. He said, Commit yourself, obey me. That's your heart's desire, and ask me what to do. And you can trust me to show you what I want you to do. Warren Wiersbe said. That it was a lady in his church going through a very, very difficult time and uh, she's going through just really, really difficult trials. She'd had a, a stroke. Uh, her husband had gone blind. Uh, just all manner of things going on in her life. And uh, they'd taken her husband to, the, her husband to the hospital where they were pretty sure he was going to die. And Warren Wearsby said he saw this lady in church and he said, um, I'm praying for you. I'm praying. I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. And she said, she caught him off guard. She said, what are you praying? And he said, well, I'm praying for God's strength and comfort in your life. And she said, Pastor, pray that I don't waste this. It's hard. It's difficult. But I don't want to waste it. I, I want this to help me to be more like Jesus. And I want to be able to help other people who are really going through the throes of depression. You're going through the, the dark valley of the shadow of death. I want to be a light for the people who walk this kind of valley. This is a dark valley, Pastor. This is hard. And I want to be able to help. And I can't do that if I waste my trial. Instead of saying, God, show me. I believe you're going to make a way. Show me the way you have for me. Let me read you a prayer I came across the other day. 
This will be the last thing I say tonight. This is the, our, closing, our closing time. A guy named Douglas McElvey uh, wrote a book called Every Moment Holy. Provides prayers for all different kinds of, uh, of idea, uh, situations. And this is a prayer he wrote. Um, it's kind of a prayer of going through a trial when your dreams are broken, when things don't turn out the way you thought they might. It's a little bit lengthy, but listen to this and um, see if you're a little more spiritual than me and you can pray this from your heart. Oh, Christ in whom the final fulfillment of all hope is held and secure, I bring to you now the weathered fragments of my former dreams. The rent patches of hope worn thin, the shards of some shattered image of life as I once thought it would be. What I so wanted has not come to pass. I invested my hopes and desires that returned only sorrow and frustration. Those dreams like glimmering feasts could not sustain me. In my head, I know that you're sovereign even over this, over my tears, my confusion, and my disappointment. But I still feel in this moment as if I've been abandoned, as if you do not care that these hopes have collapsed to rubble. And yet I know that it is not so. You are sovereign of my sorrow. You apprehended a wider sweep with wiser eyes than mine. My history hears the fingerprints of grace. You were always faithful, though I could not always trace quick evidence of your presence in my pain, yet you did remain at work, lurking in the wings, sifting all my splinterings for bright embers that might be breathed into more eternal dreams. I have seen so often in retrospect how you have not neglected me, but had with a master's care flared my desire like silver in a crucible to burn away some lesser longing and bring about your better vision. So let me remain tender now to how you would teach me. My, my disappointments reveal so much about my own agenda for my life and the ways I quietly demand that it should play out free of conflict, free of pain, free of want. My dreams are all so small. Your bigger purpose has always been for my greatest good, that I would day to day be fashioned into a more fit vessel for the indwelling of your spirit and molded into a more compassionate representative of your coming kingdom. And you in love, use all these to shape my heart into those perfect forms. So let this disappointment do its work. My truest hopes have never failed. They have merely been buried beneath the shoveled muck of disillusion or encased in a carapace of self-serving desire. It is only false hopes that are brittle, shattering like the shells of thin glass to reveal the diamond hardness of the unshakable eternal hopes within. And listen to this. So shake and shatter all that hinder my growth, O God. Unmask all the false hopes that my one true hope may shine out unclouded and undimmed. So let me be tutored by this new disappointment. Let me listen to its holy whisper that I may re at last release these lesser dreams that I might embrace the better dreams you dream for me and for your people and for your kingdom, for your creation. Let me join myself to these, investing all hope in the one hope that will never come undone or betray those who place their trust in it. Teach me to hope, O oh Lord, always and only you are the king of my collapse. 
You answer not what I demand, but what I do not even know what to ask. Now take this dream, this husk, this chafe of my chafe of my desire, and give it back, reformed, remade according to your better vision, or do not give it back at all. Here in the ruins of my wrecked expectation, let me make this confession. Here's the last line. Not my dreams, O oh Lord, not my dreams, but yours be done. Would you stand with his bowed and eyes closed, please? His bowed and eyes closed. That's a heart prayer. That's a heart prayer. It says, Lord, help me to hope in you and only in you. Unmask my false dreams, my false hopes. Lord, my disappointments reveal so much about my own agenda for my life. The ways I quietly demand that it should play out. Free of conflict, free of pain, free of want. But God has a much bigger and better purpose for us. And so tonight as we pray, I invite you to pray. Lord, in my disappointments, in my hurt, in the things that I don't like, Lord... I choose to surrender those to you. You've got a better one. You've got one that's eternal. You've got one that's chock full of meaning. Lord, not my dreams, but your dream come to pass in my life, even in the hard times and hardships. Father, I pray uh, for these, your people, for myself. Lord, it's hard. And you know that. You lived here. You lived in trials and heartaches, and I know that you were a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and you came to the place where there had to be broken dreams at 33, 34 years old where you were willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, help us to pray that with joy, help us to pray that, pray that with submission, to pray that asking for wisdom, to know how to live out the hard stuff in ways that bring you glory in ways that fit us to be more useful in your world. Lisa, play softly tonight. If you want to just come to the altar and surrender a trial to him, feel free to do that. Feel free to admit that, man, there's hard stuff in your life right now. Stuff you wish you could get out of. You would if you had a way. But Lord, I choose to want you, want to become more like you over my comfort and the way I want my life to turn out. The way I want this day to turn out. The way I want tomorrow, this week to go. Turn it over to you truly and genuinely. Talk to the Lord. See what your biggest takeaway from the day is. I'm going to be quiet as you pray, as Lisa plays. If you want to come to the altar, do that. If you want me to pray with you, I'll be glad to do that. Let God work in your life tonight.